You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. So today's scripture reading is from Luke 5, uh, 17 through 26. On one of those days, as he, was pre- as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God with their f- and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a few years ago, uh, I had this season of about probably six to nine months uh, where I became completely consumed with who Jesus was. Uh, and so there was just this, this kind of time where every single day I was, just, I was reading the Gospels. And so I, I was going through the Gospels over and over and over again. I was trying to read every book that I could on who Jesus was, his life, his ministry, and I was watching him, just feeling like I was kind of sitting back and observing him kind of for the first time in a way where I was setting aside some of the things that I might have already knew about him or assumptions I had or traditions that I had. And just trying to watch this man and just consider things like, how does, how does he live? What are his daily rhythms? Uh, who, did, who did he interact with and spend time with? Uh, just how did, he, how did he live his life? Uh, and I'm excited because as a church, we're getting to do something really similar right now together. Uh, we've been going through this, the book of Luke, uh, and we've been focusing on these encounters that Jesus had with all of these different individuals. Uh, and so today, we're like he just read, thank you, Eric, uh, we're in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, and he's going to come across this paralytic that gets dropped through a ceiling, and Pharisees start yelling blasphemy. And so it's just chaos. Uh, it's this crazy crazy story, but uh, I'm really excited about it, uh, and it's, it's interesting because it's kind of like this feast. Like, when you look at this story, there's so much happening here that we can try and digest, uh, but before you dig in, it's really important that we set the table correctly, um, so what we're going to have to do is we're actually going to have to go back a chapter into Luke chapter 4 to really make sense of what is happening in this text. Uh, and so if you've been walking with us for a while, you might be thinking, David, look, we are a couple months into this series, and we're only in chapter 5. Please don't throw this car in reverse. Uh, don't worry. It's just pausing. We're going to look at something, and then we're going to come back to, to today's text to make sense of it. Uh, but the reason I want to do that is because in Luke chapter 4, there's this, these few verses that I am absolutely convinced are the fulcrum of the entire book. I, I feel like there's about two or three verses where if you miss those, 
None of the rest of the book makes sense in the way that it was intended to make sense. Like This is the driving thrust of the following 20 chapters after chapter 4. So to set the scene for you a little bit, uh, at this point, Jesus had returned to his hometown, Nazareth. He's standing among his friends and his family and all the people that he grew up with in the temple ready to teach. And so he's in the synagogue. He opens up the book of Isaiah, and then he reads this text. You can look at it with me. In verses 18 and 19, he announced, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it's interesting. It says that Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, and then just sat down. And there's this really interesting phrase right after that where it says everyone's eyes were just fixed on him. And we'll explain why in a second, but I imagine that those eyes looked something like this, where they were just stunned at what had just been said, because Jesus drops this bombshell on them right afterwards in verse 21. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He said, today, this has been fulfilled. So why is this such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because the text that he was reading from was something called a messianic prophecy. And what that means is that that was intended to be about the Savior King that would one day come, restore Israel, and make everything right again. Restore that shalom that was broken all the way back in Genesis 3. They knew that text very, very well. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, today it's fulfilled. Because what he was saying was, I am this person that you've been waiting for. I am this King which you've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of of years. It's me, I've come, and now God's kingdom is about to break through. That moment was the inauguration of God's kingdom on this earth. He was saying, it's happening now through me. So it was stunning to them. And what was amazing is that right after that, if you start looking at what happens in, the, in passage after passage after passage after passage, following that text, everything is tied back to it. Right? Uh, Because these five things, good news, freedom, healing, forgiveness, redemption, those five things, you're going to hear them a lot today, those are the thrust of the rest of the book of Luke. Okay, let's let's look at that real quickly. Right after that, from verses 31 to 37, he goes and he casts out a demon. Right? He's setting somebody free. Right after that, verses 31, 38 through 41, he's going to heal Simon's mother-in-law and then cast out a bunch of demons. In verses 42 through 44, he's going to reiterate his purpose of proclaiming good news. He says, I have to go from town to town and continue proclaiming the gospel to these areas. Verses 12 through 16 of chapter 5, he's going to heal a leper and reverse his shame. And then today, we come to to chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, and there's this completely new development, this radical change that's about to happen in this passage compared to everything before it. And it's that Jesus doesn't just heal somebody's physical sickness. He's going to forgive their sin. So that's what brings us to today's text. That's just a little bit of context. Because today we're going to be seeing a completely different type of good news, a different type of healing, a different kind of redemption. 
So that's what we're going to be studying today. And to kind of set the scene for you with where we're at now, he's left Nazareth, he's gone from town to town sharing this information, and he's landed back in Capernaum. Uh, and if you don't know, that was kind of his, his home base during his ministry. It would usually talk about him returning to Capernaum. Uh, and it was a small little fishing village uh, just right by the Sea of Galilee. And so it had about 1,500 people, so about you know, half the size of Salado. Uh, well, I say that with the growth, maybe, maybe a third of the size of Salado. But you can get the idea here. It's just a really small fishing community uh, by the sea. And so Jesus was going town to town. All of a sudden, he started healing people and, and uh, setting demons out of people. And so that's a pretty big thing to be going on in this tiny little town, right? And so what's happened is he's actually gathered a pretty significant following at this point. Like, there's a lot of people that started to hear about this young rabbi who's going around casting out demons and teaching with authority. So there's a lot of people that had followed him. And in today's text, it says that he was teaching in somebody's house, uh, we don't know this for a fact, but we know that Peter was from Capernaum, so it's likely that that's, this was actually in Peter's household. But regardless, what we do know is that it was absolutely packed. Because in Mark's account, he goes into a little bit more detail, and in Mark's telling of the story, it says it was so full, people were actually crowded outside of the doors trying to get in, and they couldn't fit inside. So this was a significant gathering of people that had gotten here. And I just want you to kind of picture for a second, right? We're in the Middle East, so it is hot. There is no air conditioning. We're in the small little Palestinian house. Uh, and you've got these stinky, sweaty fishermen just cramming into this little building, right? It is not like a pleasant scene. It's going to stink. It's going to be tight. They're all sweaty. Maybe it didn't bother them. It would have bothered me. Uh, I've, I lived in the Middle East, and, and that was kind of the norm in the village that we lived in, is people just walked around, and it was hot, and you just sweat. But they're cramming into this, to this little uh, house. And so for the rest of the day, what I want to do is I want to study this encounter with Jesus through four different perspectives. I want to focus on kind of four different characters in this story. First, we're going to be looking at the Pharisees that were present. Then we're going to be looking at the four friends and the paralytic. And I want to look at this and focus on Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to be examining how the crowd responded to everything. So that's it. Uh, if you've ever seen the old Denzel Washington movie, Vantage Point, it's going to kind of be like that, where we're just same story, bouncing around perspectives. Uh, but the first thing that we see is the Pharisees. So in verse 17, it says this, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So this is the first mention of Pharisees in Luke's book. Uh, so he's been telling this account. It's the first time these guys show up. Uh, if you've been in church a while, you're probably familiar with that term, the Pharisees. Uh, they were one of the three religious sects, and they were kind of identified by their rules, by their standards. They had basically taken a lot of things in the Old Testament, expanded it, added to it, and they said, we're going to live in this way that is extra righteous, extra holy. We are the ones that are most loved and approved by God because look how perfect everything is around us. That was kind of the, the main thrust of them. So they were the guys that were extra holy in their own eyes. And by showing up here, we have the first glimpse of organized Jewish opposition to Jesus. And we know that uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, but what, what happened was Jesus, remember, back in chapter 4, he made this messianic claim, I am the Savior King that you've been waiting for. And now the practice at that time was that the Sanhedrin, kind of this group of religious leaders, would send out a delegation. They'd send out a team 
to go and watch anytime somebody did this. Whenever someone said, I'm the Messiah, they would send out a group of guys to go and watch that person, observe him, scrutinize him, see if he was who he said he was. And, and so the question is, well, why are they just now showing up? Well, they probably just thought he was delusional when he first started saying it back in chapter 4, right? Shows up in a synagogue, says this stuff, and leaves. They're like, this, this is just another wacko. But then he starts proving it. Demons start getting cast out. A leper just got healed. He's teaching with an absolute authority, which they have never witnessed. That word uh, authority, when it's used in that context, is the same word that's, that comes from author. Like he's teaching this text like he's the author of it. So they're, they're there watching, and we know that that's their reason for being there for a second reason, and it's their posture. Because if you notice, it says they were gathered and they were sitting. Now for us, that doesn't really strike us heavily because anyone that came to listen in our context would sit. But in that context, the only person that was supposed to be sitting was the rabbi, the teacher. In Jewish culture, the rabbi would actually sit down, and then everyone would gather around. Yet these guys are here, and it says they're sitting And remember, this place is crowded. People are trying to cram in. It takes a lot less space to stand than it does to sit. Yet this crowd of Pharisees had come, and they were sitting. So this was not a posture of, I'm curious what this man is teaching. I want to learn from it. I want to hear it. It's critical. Like This would be the same uh, as if Evan came and stood next to me while I'm teaching and stood behind my shoulder like this watching me. Like This is not the posture of someone that is ready to listen to what Jesus has to say and, and learn from it. Evan, I know you would never do that. <laughs> that's why I'm going to use you. But that's the posture that they had come in here with. And so this is kind of a side point, but I, I do want us to recognize that this is the nature of what legalism does. Legalism being defined as, as finding our salvation by the things that we do, that's what it does. It rejects the message of the gospel for the sake of self-exaltation. We measure ourselves by how good we are. And so the message of forgiveness, it becomes offensive to us. Unmerited grace becomes offensive, not something to celebrate. And that's what we saw here with the Pharisees. So let's jump now to, the, to this other group of people that show up on the scenes, these four friends and a paralytic. So they're all inside. It's crowded. It's hot. It's smelly. Jesus is teaching. Meanwhile, outside of the house... These four guys show up. Let's look at the text in verse 18. It says, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And so again, I want you to put yourself in your shoes here, right? There's this local rabbi. They've grown up with this guy. They know his dad, the carpenter. All of a sudden, he started casting out demons and healing lepers. He's back in town. He's at your buddy Peter's house. And and you know that your paralytic friend, if this guy can cast out demons and heal a leper, he can make your friend walk again. And we know, right, that that's the only chance that they have of getting that man healing. Doctors at the time had no way of responding to that. Today, we can't just all of a sudden make somebody walk. So there's a state of desperation with these men where they're like, this is our only shot. We don't know if if he's going to go off again to some other towns and not come back. We have got to get him to Jesus right now because that's our only chance of him walking again. So along come these four friends. Uh, They start to carry him up 
the staircase, and they kind of make this a really nonchalant part of the story. Luke uh, does not go into a lot of detail, but if you've ever carried something heavy up a flight of stairs, it's difficult, right? It's hard. Like just recently, we were moving our offices to the other building, and we had to get Corey's desk from downstairs. It was not a calm, quiet thing where the people inside would have not noticed. Like we were up there like, all right, turn around the corner. I got it. And I'm like weeping because I've got the heavy end. I'm like, I can't do it. Like that's, it's not an easy thing to move stuff up and down stairs. So my point is everyone inside would have been aware that something was going on outside. This was not this silent thing. We were like, all right, here we go. All right, we got him up there. Let's drop him down. This was not reconnaissance work. Like, this was, this was a commotion. And so then they finally get him up there, right? And so at this point, they start digging through the roof. Again, it kind of says in the text they removed the tiles, but we know at that time that underneath the tiles there was clay and dirt and debris that was kind of just hardened together. So you can just imagine as they start digging, that hole starts to form and everyone inside is just staring up at them at this point. Like, what are you doing? And dirt's falling on their faces and they just see these four sweaty guys looking through the hole in the roof like, we're coming, you know? And, and so everyone has just got to be watching just wildly, wildly confused, trying to make sense of this situation. But I want to pause and I want to notice something about these four men and it's their love their conviction, and their faith. Their love, their conviction, and their faith. We don't know much about these guys. We get one sentence in scripture. We don't know their names. But what we can acknowledge is the love, conviction, and faith that these men have. Like their faith was not the kind of faith that just said, yeah, I agree with the things Jesus says. And they go about their life. It wasn't this kind of peripheral thing. It was this, it was this catalyzing deep conviction in their faith that caused them to respond in a way that reflected that. And I want to remind ourselves that those guys were not superheroes. We never got their names. They don't show up again in scripture. And the beautiful truth for us to be reminded of is that God uses ordinary, faithful people to draw people to himself. That's the first thing I want us to get from these four friends Right, that God uses ordinary, faithful people like you and I to draw people to Jesus. Because the reality is that we need ordinary, faithful people to help point us back to Christ. It's just in our own walk. They need to remind us of biblical truth, encourage us when we are struggling, rebuke us when we're in sin, and we ourselves need to be that community for others. They were just ordinary guys. Because the reality, folks, is that we have friends, there are people in this room right now that are struggling with anxiety and depression and shame and guilt and sickness, and they are suffering. And as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity to have that same desperate conviction to draw our friends to Jesus, to that fountain of life that's going to satisfy their soul. So I would love for you right now to just even make a mental note that you can come back to this week of someone in your life that God has placed there who needs a real, living, tangible, present Savior right now. And encourage you to pray for them and pursue them this week. So that brings us to the third person in this story, and that is Jesus himself. And we're going to take a long pause here because there's actually 
four really important truths that we want to try and pull out of this part of the story. Right? When we zoom in on Jesus, there's a lot of things happening in this story, but four major points at a minimum that we don't want to miss. Okay, so let's look at the text. We're verse 20 at this point, and it says this, When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. Now, the first thing that we're going to notice as we look at Jesus here is that he is fulfilling that announcement that he made all the way back in chapter 4. Okay, so the first thing we want to notice is when he talked about that kingdom breakthrough, right? We start seeing all these, these dynamics of good news and healing and restoration. All of that is coming into focus in this story. We see all of those dynamics in one place. Because at this point, Jesus is like this contagious disease in a good way. But this contagious dynamic where every single person he interacts with, everyone he sees, everywhere he goes, there's just this outpouring of God's kingdom. And those five things, right, good news, healing, forgiveness, freedom, redemption, they just keep showing up over and over and over again. And so what I want us to notice is that the thumbprint of Jesus' presence is good news, healing, freedom, forgiveness, and redemption. Everywhere he goes, you will see these things. So in this story, right, they show up because it started off, he said he was teaching about God's kingdom. So we see that proclamation of good news. He's about to make a paralytic man walk. So we see the healing that he brought. We see freedom as he's freed from bondage, both physically and spiritually. We see this radical shame reversal. But at the end of it, there's this completely new development, which up to this point had not happened yet. And it's that Jesus forgives somebody of their sins. And it's just this explosion of grace. That's the only way I can think to describe it. It's, like, it's just an explosion, just an outpouring of God's grace onto this man. Because I want you to consider where this man was at in life. So he's paralyzed in an agricultural fishing society. So he's not going to be able to work in the same way that everybody else can just go get a job and survive. But beyond kind of the physical limitations that he had, back then there was this assumption or this connection that if someone was sick, that they had somehow been removed from God's favor, that there was a punishment, right? And we know that because back in Matthew, I think it was chapter 16, they see a blind man. And what's the first question the disciples ask? Who sinned? The man or his, or his parents? That made him blind. There was this association that any type of sickness or disease or impairment of any kind was God's punishment on that person. And so this man had a, had a permanent condition. So what are the social implications of that person? They had done something so significant, right? It was this completely flawed thinking. Somehow it still shows up today. We can think this, but it was absolutely present back then. So you're dealing with a man who hadn't done anything wrong. There was no guilt there, but there was shame, deep felt shame that he was worthless or ostracized or meaningless or less than. And so Jesus does not just heal him spiritually. We're actually about to see he healed him physically as well to make it known this man is not under the wrath of God. This man has been restored, healed, and so we're talking about that, that 
gospel outpouring of reversing someone's shame, it was significant here. It was significant. And the other thing that we have to remember is that the people that had showed up just came to listen to a healer and a teacher. That was the extent of their knowledge about who Jesus was at this point. They did not anticipate seeing a dead soul brought to life in their presence. They didn't expect to see a heart of stone become a heart of flesh as they were watching him. They just came to listen to this guy teach. But it's the first time we see the concept of forgiving of sins in Jesus' ministry. And the whole concept of how someone enters into a relationship with Yahweh is about to get flipped on their head. Right? Because up to this point, they had to labor and strive and work to be right before God. Right? They had to go through the proper sacrifices. They had to make sure that they walked on eggshells or they were always spiritually clean. They had to go for the, to the temple for forgiveness. It was work. And now, this guy who didn't even ask for it just gets dropped through a roof. And Jesus says, I'm going to forgive your sins. They're gone. They're gone. Just imagine their shock. Like the Pharisees in the room thinking, who is this guy? Not just that Jesus said he could forgive sins, but they're going to forgive his sins? This guy didn't even do anything. What money did he give away? What sacrifices did he make? He just showed up. He didn't even walk here. Someone dropped him in. There was shock about this. But the thumbprint of Jesus' presence is good news and healing, and freedom, and forgiveness, and redemption. And so I just, as an important reminder for for those who are followers of Jesus today, I also want to remind us and encourage us of something, that if if these qualities follow wherever Jesus is present, Jesus dwells inside of us, and so these things should be outpouring from us. They should be overflowing from ourselves if we're walking with the Lord those same things should be showing up in our life and spilling out onto the people around us. And if, if they're not, there's a good chance we're missing what John 15 talks about, about abiding in the vine. There's probably a disconnect there if that's not happening. They don't show up from just striving hard and white-knuckling it. They show up from a life that's attached to Christ, and those things spill out from us. We cannot claim to love Jesus if we are unwilling to extend to others the same grace that saved us. And I would make the argument that our response to fallen, broken people, those who are struggling, those who are uh, just broken, that it's one of the clearest examples of Christ living in us. Watch how someone responds when someone is in shame and suffering and hardship. Does the kingdom pour out of them and these type of qualities come out of them towards that person? That is the strongest, one of the strongest evidences of a life that's submitted to Christ. So that's the first thing, is that this is the fulfillment of the announcement that he made back in chapter 4. The other thing that's, that's noteworthy here, remember I said there's four things we want to take away as we, as we focus on Jesus, is that he revealed his identity. He revealed his identity because right after that in verse 21, look what the scribes say. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins except God alone? And that's a really appropriate question, right? If I was there, I probably would have had a very similar question in my mind. Who does this guy think he is? 
Who is this? And in fact, it's the same question that the disciples are going to ask a few chapters later. Whenever they're in the boat, it's getting rocked, the storm is crazy. Jesus calms the storm with a word, and they say, Who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? In fact, it's the same question that Jesus asked himself. One time he was walking with the disciples in Matthew 16, and he asked them, Who do you say that I am? In fact, I believe it's one of the most important questions that anybody can ask themselves is, who is Jesus? But the reality is, at this point in the story, the answer had already been revealed. They really were without excuse at this point, because back in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel announced it. In verse 31, he tells Mary, she'll have a son, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And then John the Baptist announced it. Right, He sees Jesus walking up and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he gets baptized and God himself announces it. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then in Luke 4, Jesus himself announces it when he says that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 61. And in fact... At the end of Luke 4, even the demons announced it. It says that he's healing people and casting out demons. And then in verse 41, it says, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. In fact, the only people that didn't realize it at this point was the religious leaders. They're the only ones that didn't get it at this point. And the unfortunate truth is that the Pharisees did not get to experience Jesus' grace because they did not recognize who Jesus was. They did not get to experience Jesus' grace because they did not recognize who he was. That was their stumbling block. And it's interesting because it reminded me, I alluded earlier in the story how we lived in the Middle East and the place we were living, 99.9% Muslim, pretty much everyone we interacted with uh, was, was committed to Islam. And what I found shocking once we got over there, we were having these conversations with our friends and neighbors and, and people in our, in our neighborhood. Um, there are an amazing amount of similarities between Christianity and Islam. And what I mean by that is if you go and start telling them about Moses or David or the prophets, they're going to nod and say, yeah, absolutely. If you say that we are sinful and in need of, of God's salvation, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. If you see, say that Jesus was a great man, a great teacher, sent from God, they'll be like, yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. But the line in the sand is when you say that Jesus was the Son of God who has the authority to forgive our sins. That is when you became a radical blasphemer. We cannot overlook who Jesus was. We can't miss that. We can't skip over it because we're familiar with it or we've heard it. We have to recognize who Jesus was. If you say that he's a nice teacher or a good guy or that he's just a good example for your kids or a good spiritual advisor, you will miss out on Jesus' grace in the same way the Pharisees did. Next point we want to look at with Jesus is the emphasis on the spiritual over the physical. 
verse 23, he says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise up and walk? Which is a really tough question when you think about it. But one of the most shocking things about this story is that Jesus didn't just fix the guy's legs, right? Anyone that's just watching this story, you've just seen him heal person after person after person. Someone comes up, they want healing, he heals them, boom. So why is this different? Why didn't he just heal this guy and send him on his merry way? Instead, he extends forgiveness. And here's the reason why. Because Jesus knew that we needed spiritual healing more than we need physical healing. He knew that a diseased heart was more important than a diseased body. And he he recognized and he prioritized that a healthy soul was more important than a healthy body. We know that we are not always promised physical healing on this earth. There's this kind of shocking story in John chapter 5 when Jesus is walking by the pool at Bethesda and there's this one little phrase where it says he walked by a multitude of people that were lame and disabled. A multitude. whole crowd of people could have healed them all. But instead he walked through them up to this one man and he healed him. And the reality is we are not always promised physical healing here in this present age. But what we do know is that there will never be a moment in history from now until Jesus returns where the healing of our souls is not offered in full to anyone who believes. There will never be a moment where you cannot approach Jesus on your knees as Savior and be brought into his kingdom and receive that unmerited grace that he offers Church, our greatest need is not physical healing. And our greatest need is not safety. Our greatest need is not comfort. Our greatest need is not more convenient circumstances. Our greatest need is to be saved by a loving Savior. So, again, this is a passing point, but I do want to remind us that this earth is just a vapor. It's coming, and it's going, and it's going to be gone Don't lose sight of our mission. Don't lose sight of why God is giving you another breath. Don't get distracted by everything going on. Keep pursuing God and drawing people to Christ. And the last thing I want to point out as we look at Jesus is the display of authority. In verse 24, look at it with me. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, go home. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. And what's interesting is probably over the course of the last like five-ish months, six-ish months, I've been really intrigued by this idea of authority in the Gospels. It was something I don't think I'd ever seen the full weight or impact of. But it's everywhere. It's very, very pervasive throughout the Gospels. In in Mark chapter 1, it says that people are amazed at Jesus' authority to teach and to heal. And then in Mark chapter 2, it says he wants to demonstrate his authority to forgive sins. And in chapter 3, he gives the apostles authority to heal. 
He gives off that authority. In Luke 4, Satan tempts Jesus with authority over all of the kingdoms of the earth. And then right after that, it says the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching because it says his word possessed authority. And then right after that, in verse 36, it says the people are astonished because he has the authority to command demons to leave, and they obey him. So here in chapter 5, he says there's a different dynamic to my authority, which you haven't realized yet. I have the authority to forgive sins. He says, I'm not here to just make you guys feel better. I'm not here to just get rid of this one little sickness. I'm here to bring in a kingdom where one day there will not be a sickness on this earth, period. My seven-year-old daughter broke her arm last week, and she, and I was talking with her at the table, how are you feeling, how's it going, those type of things. And she says, just wish I was in heaven where this thing wouldn't be broken anymore. There's a lot of weight behind that. <laughs> she got it, that this is just temporary. But there's something much bigger going on. But Jesus' authority is unleashed in this moment. It's just unhinged. He says, I can control disease and demons and the winds and the wave, but the most important thing that I have come to do is to bring dead people to life. Later on, he's going to say, I came to seek and to save the lost. That's why I'm here. So moving to the last people in this story, it's the crowd, right? Which they've experienced a lot in the last few moments. They got these guys ripping the roof open. Someone gets dropped in. All of a sudden, his, his sins are forgiven. Then he gets physically healed, stands up, walks. The Pharisees start yelling blasphemy. What is the crowd going to do here? Let's read in verse 25. It says, Immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, went home, glorifying God, and amazement seized them all. That was my prayer for us this morning as a church, that amazement would seize us all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And so this whole situation resulted in the way that God desires every situation to result in which is passionate, sincere worship. People were astonished at his power and his authority and his goodness, and they left praising him, celebrating his glory. But we, we see two responses here, don't we? Right? We see this crowd filled with awe and wonder, singing the praises of God, and then we see this bitter group of religious leaders that are opposing him, but there's one thing that we don't see in this story, and that is apathy. There's not a single person that was in that room that just witnessed what happened and said, eh, we'll see, maybe. I guess I agree with that guy. There was a polarization that happened when people encountered Christ. It was worship or it was anger. Those were the two responses that we see and I hope that we can slow down enough this morning to pause and celebrate and marvel and worship like the crowd did. I was losing my voice while we were singing earlier, going through that song, I, I Speak the Name of Jesus, when it's talking about Jesus encountering depression and anxiety and overcoming those things. 
And my hope is that in these last few minutes that we have today, there would be a sober stillness before God where we can just soak in the reality of what just happened in this story. And that that would cause the same reaction in us that it caused in the crowd, that we would be seized with awe and that we would glorify God. And I also want to say that if you've never tasted that, this idea of just undeserved, unmerited grace is just confusing and weird to you. You're thinking, I have no idea what that means. You've just been carrying around this guilt and this shame and this weight, and you don't know how to get rid of it. I want you to understand that every part of God's kingdom, which we just talked about, which is good news, healing, forgiveness, redemption, all of those things are still available to you right now. So please don't walk away if that's just foreign to you. Please come talk with us. I would love for you to understand how you can be in this relationship with Christ where you get that same unmerited, undeserved grace. It doesn't matter how big your sin is. God is not intimidated by it. It doesn't come with boundaries or fine print. It's available for everyone who trusts in Christ. And I hope that you get to worship with us as we celebrate who Christ is and what he's done. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you that you are who you said you are. Thank you that you sent Jesus. It didn't just leave us here in our sin, in our shame, in our brokenness. I beg you to make us into a people that worship and celebrate Christ the way that crowd did. I pray that we would be filled with awe and wonder, that you would shatter any apathy that we have because we've heard these things for so many years and so many times. I pray that your word would cut us to the bone and the marrow and that we would be filled with wonder and with worship. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. 